Thank you, Brenton. Thank you, Brenton. Amen. What I'm talking about this morning, we're going to be looking at John 13 to 17, talking about being equipped to overcome suffering through communion with the Trinity. That is an intense title. I'm going to start by talking about me. I want to talk about, just for a second, I want to talk about my dad. My dad. One of the things I love about my dad, he was an engineer for General Motors. He was an executive. And his job for many years was designing the, the machines that would make the carburetors for an engine. He just loved designing machines and understanding how engines worked. He loved understanding how cars worked. He, loved under, he just loved understanding how things worked. And I, I'm realizing as I get older, I think I have my dad's brain. Except instead of car engines, I love understanding how grace works practically. And I found if I can understand how it works, I can believe it. And I can do it. I can stay with it. If I get how it works... Because the more that I get how it works, the more real it feels to me. And then you just compound that with, over time, you see the progress of grace. In other words, what you understand about how grace works begins to line up with some of the small changes you see in your own life. And over time, you start to believe it even more. You go, okay, this thing's really real. And so for me, when I approach a subject, a a passage like John 13 to 17, it can be so big to us in terms of the grandiose nature that it seems to advertise. But actually, it's, it's really gloriously small. And there's a practicality to it that I appreciate. I'm gonna brag on myself for one more minute. It has a payoff at the end, hopefully. The, uh, the thing that I, I like about me, the thing that I like about my contribution to the family, I have a gift of noticing. And I have a gift of appreciating. I don't think I'm alone or unusual in that gift. I think lots of people have it. But I think that we get better at it the more we allow the process of grace to get us out of ourselves. I think one of the hardest things to do in life is to notice. I think it's one of the hardest things because we tend to get swallowed up or self-absorbed in the demands of the day. We tend to get accidentally, you know, drowning in the details of the expectations, the problems, the difficulties, the finances, the stuff, the people, the frustrations. We can get overwhelmed and we can drown in the details of the day, and when we find ourselves drowning in the details of the day, we stop noticing. And I find that one of the secrets to unlocking John 13 to 17, the full power of it in our lives, is noticing. It's such a small application, but I'm giving you the preview of where I want to end this morning. The, it's a big thing. It's a large, it's a cosmic, it's a it's a massive thing that Jesus is setting before us as a people, as, a, as believers, followers of Jesus. It's a massive thing. And our way forward, the thing I love about Jesus is he puts this massive thing in front of us 
tells us everything he's going to do on his end related to that massive thing, and then tells us the small things that we can do today to engage in that massive thing that is set before us. That's John 13 to 17. He tells us this massive thing. I'm going to bring you into Trinitarian community. You go, what? I'm gonna bring you into the fire and the furnace of transformation. I'm gonna bring you into the depths of human satisfaction at the highest level. I'm gonna bring you into the fullness of joy. I'm gonna bring you into the meaning of life. I'm gonna bring you into the sum of everything and all that you were made for, and all that you were meant to be, I'm gonna bring you into the fiery heart of it. I'm gonna bring you into myself and how I have community within myself. I'm gonna bring you into me as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. I'm gonna bring you into how the Father loves the Son, how the Son loves the Spirit, how the Spirit loves the Father. I'm gonna bring you into the fiery details of how I show affection with pleasure within myself. That's gigantic, because yes, and I'm gonna do it in such a way that you're going to have it imparted into your experience, your emotions, your perspective how you experience and express love to those around you. Now that seems difficult. He goes, yes. Then I'm gonna do that with everyone that you know that loves Jesus. I am now officially in unbelief. How are you gonna do it? He goes, oh, it's easy. I'm gonna get you noticing things and I'm gonna get you appreciating one another and I'm gonna get you seeing things you aren't prone to see and I'm gonna get you doing things that you're not prone to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do lots of small little things in you as you engage in small acts of obedience. Over time, it's going to begin to deliver you into who I've made you to be and how I've made you to love. It's gonna be incremental, it's gonna be small, it's gonna be steady, it's gonna feel impossible, you're gonna feel a million miles away from it, you're not gonna have the eyes to see your own progress, you're gonna have no idea how it's going, and you're gonna wake up and you're gonna be profoundly different over many decades if you stay with it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, the biggest problem with what it is that Jesus wants to bring us into is we don't believe it. That's the biggest problem. We, it's not even that we sin. We sin because we don't believe it. We actually don't believe this stuff. And we reduce, therefore, the scope of what it is that Jesus promises. We reduce the scope of what he promises that he's going to do. We reduce what it is he wants to bring us into. We reduce or are barely aware of what it's unto, where it's going, we reduce it because we're kind of drowning in the day-to-day -day and we're not quite sure how to get out of it. Because I'm gonna help you get out of it. Well, before I start in John 13 to 17, I wanna look at Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, because it's one of those process kind of prayers. It's one of those Prayers an engineering mind would love. It's kind of like, how does this thing work? Paul goes, I'm going to tell you how it works. The apostle Paul 
spoke about the purpose and the potential of New Covenant community almost more than anybody, probably not almost, more than anybody. He spoke about what we've been bound together for. If you've ever wondered, if you've ever looked across the way at that person that you're in church with and went, how did I end up here with them? I don't know that I would have picked this. I don't know that I would have picked them. I mean, if you could have seen the 12 and the 70 and the 120 and the 500, I'm guessing if we were us and we are, we would have looked at the 12, the 70, the 120 and the 500 and said, not for me. I'm going to find my own crew. I do not want to hang out with that crew. I I don't know about them. There's, of course, as we know, lots of people that look at us and go, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. What church do you go to? Forerunner. Oh, really? Where's that? South KC. What's that a part of? IHOP. Uh. (laughs) I get it. We've been bound together into something with one another. And the Lord knows we're going to like it on the back end. Every person who's been saved, born again, cleansed on the inside, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, every single believer who's ever lived, will ever live, or is alive right now, every single follower of Jesus, saved, born again, cleansed, filled, has a new mandate on their lives to lay hold of and express the love of Jesus as a light that contrasts against the darkness. Every believer has a mandate to lay hold of the love of Jesus and express the love of Jesus in a way that equips each of us to persevere through the trials of life today, the drowning thing I was saying a minute ago, and the suffering to come. There's drowning today, there's suffering in the future. This is a happy sermon, I promise. The totality of the Christian life. In other words, if you're going, okay, I've been saved, but what's it about? What's it about? Okay, I'm saved. I'm going to church. I'm with believers. I'm doing the stuff. I'm trying to find a friendship group. I'm wanting to get some friends. I'm wanting to parent my kids better. I'm wanting to manage my money better. I'm wanting to build that shelf I've been trying to build for years. What's it about? It's about walking in a manner, this is the key, that produces versus finding a friend were to produce something in friends. I just want to say that really clearly. I don't know that you understand the Christian life if you don't grasp what I just said. The point of the Christian life is not to find friends. It's not to find friends in your friendship group. It's not to find friends in your affinity group. It's not to go bowling until you're friends. The goal of the Christian life, in part, is to produce something in friends. We're to walk in a manner that produces intimate friendships. They don't happen by just hanging out together. They don't happen on the run. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. What I'm talking about today isn't about the joy of godly friendships and the awesomeness of hanging out with godly people and and just being around one another. This is about the intentionality, the demand on our lives 
that the opportunity of the cross and the blood of Jesus places on us. The blood of Jesus, the cross, has introduced us into a new reality of living that places a demand on us to engage in a certain way that if we do, will produce something. It will. You know a tree by its fruit. If you go the way of Jesus, there will be results, but it will take time. And we are impatient, and we are lonely, and we are frustrated, and we are broken. And in our frustration at our brokenness, and in our frustration at today, and in our frustration in the seeming lack of results as it relates to the way that Jesus set before us, in our impatience, we are prone to unbelief. It's not real. It's not working. My kids aren't doing what I thought they would do, and my family life isn't working, and the money's not working, and the friendships aren't working. And I think it's the church. I think it's the church I'm going to. That's the problem. I think that the leadership team is not doing enough related to providing the opportunities for me to have friends. No, I think you're not doing the Sermon on the Mount enough by grace to produce something in the people around you that forges friendships. Was that too blunt? I don't want to be blunt. I want to be kind. How do we produce intimate friendships within our families? And then here's a key phrase. How do we produce intimate friendships within those whom the Spirit draws near? If we'll be patient, if we'll engage, if we'll pray, if we fast, if we do the Sermon on the Mount, we do the Beatitudes, lots of repenting, really talking to the Lord, asking him to turn our hearts, to turn our attention to the things that matter. We just, these incremental little things we do over time, the, the, there's just a magnet that starts to get activated in our life and the right people find their way to us. The right people. We wanna be friends with certain people. The Holy Spirit wants us to be friends with the right people. And the Holy Spirit has this magnet that he activates to draw the right people. The Lord just has this. And what do I mean by the right people versus our desired people? We desire to be friends with certain people, but the Holy Spirit goes, no, I've got, a, I've got this chemical mixture of particularity. I've got this type of personality. I've got this person, their strengths, their attributes. There's ways in which you're going to provoke them towards me, and there's ways that they're going to provoke you towards me, and there's ways in which the chemical reaction of the ones I draw together is going to spur one another on. There's details to how the Lord leads, and there's details to how the Lord draws, and there's details to who the Lord brings into your life, and there's a chemical reaction in the details that produces godliness and love for Jesus. If we'll be patient, if we'll just stay with it, as we consistently and stubbornly apply the commands of Jesus in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we lead one another, in the way that we serve one another, as we do the Sermon on the Mount over time, we chip away at our souls. We chip away as we push one another incrementally towards the goal of knowing and loving Jesus with the fullness of our being. If the starting point is love Jesus with the fullness of my being now, I go, ugh. But if the but if the starting point is, I'm going to put my spirit in you, I'm going to point you in the right direction, I'm going to give you the incremental actions to take, and I'm going to bring cool people that you're going to like, not at first though, I'm going to bring cool people around you that are going to push you, 
I am so thankful for my friends. I've just been just all week just filled with gratitude for my friends. I'm just really blown away. Because I can, I can see it in a way that I wouldn't have appreciated years ago. I can see a little bit, just really a little bit, for real, a little bit. I can see the uniqueness of the friends around me and their contribution, but I can see the uniqueness of my contribution to them. I can see the incremental push. One of the people that I love being friends with, though I would not have thought I would have loved being friends with, I hope he hears this, is Stuart Greaves. I love being friends with Stuart Greaves, but I never would have guessed that I would love it. And the reasons for why I love it aren't what I thought they would be when I was in my 20s when I met him for the first time. When I met Stuart, I liked him because I thought he was interesting and deep. And there were things that I was like, I don't know about that other stuff. But it's the other stuff that I've come to love and appreciate. What do I mean? Well, if you're gonna be friends with Stuart, and people, are, you know, people in the room might be like, I wanna be friends with Stuart. How do you get to be friends with Stuart? I don't know, Holy Spirit. So the, so the, but I wanna tell you, if you aspire to be friends with Stuart, you gotta know. I don't know that I have a friend that's more demanding as it relates to Sermon on the Mount quality interactions. If I don't do Sermon on the Mount quality interactions, he calls me on it. It's like, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's like, he just calls me on it. I don't even know that he means to half the time because he just kind of, you know, pulls random Bible verses that I've never even heard of from memory, sets them in front of me and goes, hey, what are you doing? You know, good point. <laughs> I need to not do that anymore and I need to do that. Thank you. There's a standard by which Stuart conducts himself in relationship that places a demand on me as a friend that pushes me. I love it. I wouldn't have loved it years ago. Years ago, I might have felt condemned by it or I might have felt in comparison to it. But you know, years later, I go, man, wow, what a gift. I look at Mike. Mike, just by the rigor of the way in which he shows up, I show up more than I ever would have. I promise you, I know me. The way that he pushes himself to show up, the way that Dan Brown, the way that Jess Jerstad, the way that different ones in our midst push themselves to show up pushes me. I'm pushed by who they are. Matt Candler's perspective and joy and delight in the word, I'm pushed by it. Of course, I'm not pushed by anybody as much as I'm pushed by my own wife. I just said to her this morning, I'm so thankful for you. Who I am as a product of who she is and the way in which her incremental choices have pushed me. We don't like to be pushed because we don't appreciate the gift of it. It's the way New Covenant community works. We chip away. Together with all the saints, how does it work? Paul is revealing the process of perfection, he says, that he would grant you. It's very familiar, but I'm gonna read it anyways. According to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. I wanna be strong on the inside. I want my interior life. This whole sermon this morning is about the quality of our interior life impacting our exterior friendships. 
I wanna be strengthened on the inside. And so Paul goes, well, here's how. Here's how it happens. The way that it happens, the way that you're strong in your interior life is that first Christ dwells in your heart through faith. We, we skip that part when we pray it in the prayer room. We go really fast, but that part is critical. You can't understand the engine that Jesus is building in your life in John 13 to 17 if you don't understand that phrase, Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. The way in which we go forward, the way in which we're equipped to suffer, the way in which we're equipped to persevere, to endure, the way that it happens is that at the center of the engine, the very fuel for the engine of our lives and the quality of those lives, the fuel is that Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith and he has something that he wants to impart to us. He possesses something within his being, a quality of how he loves and he wants the quality of his love that's burning within him to be imparted into us, our experience, how we love. He wants to set it in us in a profound and a powerful way, if we don't understand that as our starting point, that there is someone dwelling inside of me, the spirit of Christ, he has something that he wants to give me. He is actively interested with jealousy in giving me that which he possesses on a continual, on a daily basis. He wants to unleash it on the inside of me. He wants to do it. If that's my starting point, Christ dwelling in my heart through faith, that you being rooted in love by the one that dwells inside of you, that you'd be able to comprehend, that you'd be able to experience, that you'd be able to know the love of Christ. That's how it works, Paul is saying. He's going, as you experience the love of Jesus, as you experience a life in the word, a life in prayer, a life in connecting with him, as you build a life in connecting with Jesus, you start to experience biblical concepts of mercy and humility, and tenderness, and gratitude, and honor. Think about entering into Trinitarian fellowship, Trinitarian community, and you start noticing how Jesus has gratitude for his Father, and the Spirit has gratitude for Jesus. There's gratitude, and there's honor, and there's humility, and there's tenderness, and there's kindness, in the way that they relate with one another. And you see it in the word and you're experiencing it in, well, I love the phrase from Mike, the Trinitarian conversation. You start to experience his passion, his fury, but his tenderness towards our enemies, his delight in our obedience so much more. His love becomes real, his love becomes alive, But more importantly, over time, as it chips away, his love becomes detailed in our understanding as we engage with it. Then as others around me, family, close friends, as they start reaching for something, they comprehend, and then now there's the possibility. This is is hopefully the biggest word I'll use in this sermon the way that this thing's gonna work, the bigness of Jesus' vision happens in my smallness and your smallness, but our smallness together ends up producing exponentiality. Exponentiality. In other words, my little small changes, my little small insights, my little small realizations, my little small transformations, and your little small ones. Then the Lord brings us together and we start comparing notes 
and you had experiences that I didn't have in Jesus, and I'm provoked by them, and I start reaching for them, and I never would have if we never talked. If I didn't repent in this area, if I'm stuck in sin, shame, condemnation, and self-pity, I'm never going to have the conversation. I'm not. All I'm ever going to want to talk about is why me and woe is me. I'm never going to talk about you saw what and you experienced what in the love of Jesus and Jesus did what and your testimony is what and your story is what and then you responded how and you repented that way and then suddenly a facet of the, of the infinite diamond of Jesus's love is now mine from you because you found a way to get out of sin and self-absorption. You found a way to get out of self-pity. You found a way to actually do the Sermon on the Mount a little bit by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we compared notes and it rubbed off on me. It poked me, it provoked me, it pushed me and it accelerates the chipping away that's happening in my soul. It's beautiful. Then we start to see the value of one another. We start to really see, no, I need you. As we know and experience love, we express it to one another in small but important ways. We begin to act upon this union we have with one another by the indwelling spirit that joins us together. We pray, we fast, we study, we pursue, we restrain our speech, our strength. We forgive. We fight for purity in our speech. We fight for purity in our thoughts towards one another. We work to reconcile friends in conflict. We work to reconcile injured relationships. As we do these things, we're pushing one another towards the heart of Jesus. These little exchanges matter in very significant ways over time as we persevere. They add up and multiply. We must have a vision for the fullness of Christ in Ephesians 3.19 and the John 17.23 prayer, the, the perfection of loving unity. I mean, it's such a prayer. We have to have a vision for the fullness of Christ in love and the perfection, perfect loving unity. Jesus says, I'm praying for that. I'm not settling. I'm not going to settle for you merely tolerating one another, says Jesus. I'm not going to settle. I don't care how much you disagree. I don't care. Some of you, it's like, I don't care how much you don't like my preaching. Jesus goes, I'm not going to settle for you tolerating Slyker. You're going to like him. But that's the corresponding part. We can't just have a vision for where Jesus says this is going we have to have faith that he's gonna bring it there. We have to preserve his word as he said it, and we have to have faith that he's going to do as he said. He's gonna do it. This is really important in understanding John 13 to 17. This is important. I found over the years that for me, the, the faith component, so I put it together in the storyline. You know, for me, the book of Romans shows me the way grace works in my daily life. The, the Sermon on the Mount shows me my part in responding to grace. 
in my daily interactions and relationships. The Song of Solomon shows me where my life and the lives of my friends can go in mature love. It, it gives me the storyline of how we could get there. It makes, it, it makes mature love together seem possible in a really beautiful way. I love the Song of Solomon. End times, eschatology, it, it takes all of that and it sets it into a context. It gives me perspective. It helps me understand the bigger picture and the bigger story so I can see where I fit in it, where my small little choices fits in light of this big purpose of God. John 13 to 17 adds this element of faith. Do I believe that Christ's vision for love is possible do I believe that I can go somewhere with others that reflects what it is he said he was going to do? It's the furnace of our own transformation, the furnace of the Father's love for Jesus, the furnace of the love that Jesus has for the Father, the way that the Spirit delights in Jesus the way they see one another, the way they feel about one another, the way that they treat, the way that they are towards one another. This fiery, joyful union, there's an entry that has been granted to us. We, a new and living way has been made for us by the cross and the blood of Jesus to enter into the heart of this fiery fellowship. And this furnace is the furnace of our transformation. It's how our interior life goes from broken and self-pitying and petty and complaining and grumbling and frustrated and annoyed. It's how we go from constantly being tweaked by the small petty things that others do. It's how we go from the small annoyances that like a thousand paper cuts tend to get us into a very different spirit. But the Lord goes, no, I'm gonna bring you into a furnace of transformation where you feel fundamentally different on the inside towards the people around you and you think differently about them and you notice things about them and you appreciate things. You see things like I see them and you express things like I feel them and express them. I'm gonna bring you into that furnace of transformation. As we begin to see the bigger picture of what's coming, the bigger picture of how to prepare, fight to grow in love, and tenderly, kindly begin to provoke those around us to go somewhere in Jesus as well. I call it the glorious impossibility. It's just impossible. But at the end, we're all gonna be shocked. We're not just gonna be shocked when we see Jesus. We're gonna be shocked when we see his church. I just hear so many testimonies. I grew up in the church, but I hear it like it's a negative. I grew up in the church. I wanna promise that the people that grew up in the church that are most frustrated by the church are gonna be the most shocked by what Jesus produces in and through the church. They're gonna be shocked. They're gonna go, okay, Jesus is real because I know those people. Only Jesus could do that. The glorious impossibility 
the fullness of joy that Jesus advertises in John 13 to 17. And he advertises the fullness of joy, the fullness of joy that he is beckoning us to drink of, the fullness of joy can only be experienced in context to new covenant community. The fullness of our joy can only be experienced in context to this. That may be really bad news for you, but there is no such thing as you and me, God. It's you and me. I don't need them. No, I I set you in that spiritual family because you absolutely need them. No, you and me. You and me in a shade tree, God. That is life from this point forward. It's you and me. I'm gonna, it's, it's God and God alone. I only want you. I only need you. I just want that one thing. Yes, one thing is to inquire in my temple with other people. I never built the temple for David and David alone. That was, it was a temple and there were people and they were broken and they were annoying and they were smelly and they were frustrating and they were dirty and they left their stuff laying around and now I'm talking about my kids. And then I pick up the stuff and the stuff appears minutes later. Now the fullness of joy, the fullness of the Christian life, the fullness of what we were saved for can only be experienced in and through him fully manifested and enjoyed in the context of spiritual family. It's him and us. That was the intention of the Father to set us in a family and have us experience something together of Him. To say it just simply, though I think I've made my point, Jesus wants you to experience Jesus through others and through prayer and through His Word and by the Holy Spirit, but by the prayer. Holy Spirit word stuff happening through others as well. The the whole manifold wisdom of God experience can only be fully appreciated as you connect with other believers. The fullness of God is available to you through relating to others that you don't want to relate with but absolutely need if you're gonna touch the fullness of where this is going. He made it non-negotiable. Now let's look for a minute at John 13 and, and this is, We're going to be looking at John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. We're going to look at it for a long time. And I'm glad because this is just scratching the surface. I have to confess, when I first started this kind of John 13 to 17 journey, I'd skip right to John 17. But I love John 13 now. I love it. It's phenomenal. I don't have time to do it justice because I went a little too long on some of the other stuff. The second service will get a much better version of this sermon. Just kidding. Just kidding. It'll be much worse. I always say it better the first time. On the evening prior to his suffering and death on the cross, I I just love this phrase. He said, he knew that his hour had come. He knew that it was time to depart to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, John says this. John says, he loved them to the end. What does that mean? It means he's on the eve of the cross, the suffering the torment, the everything that was about to be done with him. He knows what's about to happen. He knows where he's about to go, but he also knows what's about to happen to his friends. He, he knows what's ahead for them, and he loves them. It, John is marveling many decades after the fact. He's looking back, and he's going, it's stunning to me how 
high quality Jesus' love was in that moment. That is a quality of love. And John goes out of his way in that chapter to, to demonstrate and write about and express the inexpressible. He goes out of his way to prove to us we don't have this kind of quality of love in us. There's an, there is a quality of love that only Jesus possesses that he is about to express. In one of his darkest, most difficult moments, he's loving his friends, his dearest friends. And here's the other thing that just sticks out to me. I can't believe it. If you had told me, if you said, hey, you're going to have some friends over for dinner. Love it. They're going to be your closest friends in the whole world. That sounds like fun. One of them is literally possessed by the devil. Wait, what? And the devil is going to be part of your dinner. Hold on a second. What are you telling me? Yes, the Satan. He's going to come to dinner and be at your table. I mean, I'd be anointing my doorpost with oil. I'd be, you know, shaking some rain sticks. I would be, I would be doing whatever I could, whatever I knew to do. I don't even know what to do when Satan comes to dinner. I don't know what to do. You don't see Jesus thrown off at all by this information. John states it as plainly as they were wearing sandals. And oh, by the way, there was Satan. You, Jesus doesn't seem ruffled by it. And here's the bigger point. The quality of the love that he expresses to Judas is not impacted by the fact that the devil is in his midst inciting one of his dearest friends to a near betrayal. He's going to betray Jesus in a moment. Jesus knows that he will be betrayed. He knows that the devil is in their midst. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's said to Peter, hey, I, I've, you know, the devil, who's like there? Hey, he's asked for you by name. I've, I'm allowing it. I mean, this is, the, this is the table conversation. The devil is there. He's gonna cause one friend to betray Jesus. He's gonna cause another to betray Jesus. He's gonna fracture friendships. He's gonna stress the, 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 the group. Every friendship, every relationship is gonna be stressed by the evil one in very short order and that's why John in that passage is going, he loved them to the end. The quality of his love is most magnified by the fullness of evil in their midst. You can see it. You go, that's unbelievable. I could not love that way. Yes, that's the point. So Jesus, he surprises them. They didn't know it was coming. He girds himself. He takes off his clothes. I mean, we skip over that part too. We think maybe he was wearing you know, whatever, we don't picture it. We don't want to. But John spares no detail. He said, no, he takes off his clothes. I mean, what do you do? Jesus disrobes. They're thrown off. He puts on the garment, a towel of a servant, starts washing their feet. They don't know what to do. They didn't know it was coming. If somebody told you, hey, Francis Chan is coming back to town. He's gonna have dinner at your place. The devil will also be there. Your closest friends will be there. But I need you to, I'm gonna let you in on the surprise. At a certain point, Francis is gonna wash your feet. Well, what would you do? You'd do what I would do. You would bathe, shower, perfume, cologne, put deodorant directly on the feet. That's our way. If they had known that Jesus was going to wash their feet, they would have cleansed their own feet in advance. But that's our problem. We're just like them. We're waiting 
to be at the table with Jesus, Revelation 3. We're wanting to zealously repent so we can come to the table. An adversary is set against us. Betrayal and trouble are in our future. Dirt is on our feet that we are completely blind to. We don't understand our future peril. We don't understand our current condition. We don't understand our need for his loving service. And in that moment, we're not able to prepare ourselves. And yet in that moment, he loves us. The quality of his love, he washes us and says, if you don't let me do this, you have no part. In other words, this can't be you washing you. You have to let me wash you. You have to let me help you. The, the whole passage, John 13 to 17, begins with him serving and washing. The passage ends with him praying. And in between, he's promising. Promising what? The empowering of his Holy Spirit. You have to understand, he sets it in the context of suffering and trial and pressure and difficulty. He commands that we love one another. He prays that we will. But through it all, he says, you need to let me wash you in ways you can't even perceive. You need to let me empower you so that you can actually do the Sermon on the Mount. You need to let me pray for you and you need to hear me pray for you so that by the time I'm done praying, you'll actually believe that I can do this and that I can do it through you. The first thing we do in stories like this is write ourselves out of the story because we're more aware of our weakness than we are Jesus' intercession. We're more aware of our deficiency than we are the otherworldly love of Jesus that he possesses, that we need, that he wants to impart to us. And so when he gives the command we think, I can't do that. That's mostly the first thing we think. I give you a new command. Love one another. Our response isn't to ponder or to think or to notice. Our response is to, is defeat. I'm bad at that. He goes, no, here's why it's a new command. It's not just a new command. Think about when I'm giving this new command. I'm giving this new command on the eve of the cross. My blood What's about to happen? This isn't just a command when I give it now on this date. I didn't give it to David. I didn't give it to Moses. I gave it to you because it's not just a command in the new covenant. It's a promise. When it comes with the indwelling spirit by the blood of Jesus, it's a promise. You're going to love one another. It's a declaration. You're going to love one another. Imagine that every time you fail at loving somebody you care about. Just imagine, rather than imagining what a failure you are and how mad they must be at you, imagine Jesus in you with joy going, but you're gonna love them. You're gonna love them. I washed you. I'm praying for you. And I'm empowering you by my spirit. You're gonna love them in a way that's gonna help them get through suffering and they're in turn gonna love you. I'm not just jealous for you to love them. I'm working behind the scenes in ways you can't see to get them to love you. And you're gonna love one another through suffering. You're gonna, want, you're gonna love one another through pain. You're gonna make it. But more than make it, you're gonna touch the fullness of my joy. That's a promise. Let's stand.
Well, the first thing we want to do is confess to the Lord our unbelief. We mostly view our own deficiency, not your sufficiency. When it comes to the subject of mature, perfected love, I mostly view my own deficiency, not your sufficiency. We say, I need you, Lord, but the Lord goes, no, more than that. You have me. You just don't believe it. Yes, you need me, but also you have me. I've washed you. I'm empowering you by my spirit. I'm praying for you. You have me. And you spend most of your time living as if you don't. So just everybody all over the room, just close your eyes for a moment and hold out your hands if you want to, to the Lord. Lord, here we are. Remind us again, we have you. This is not too far. It's not too lofty. It's not out of our reach. But by your blood, by your costly sacrifice, you've set this within our daily life. The normal and the mundane, we have you. We have you. You've brought us into something. You've washed us into something. You've declared something that is ours to lay hold of. Help us to do it. The small, significant ways we choose to do the Sermon on the Mount. The small, significant ways we engage with the Beatitudes. The small, significant ways we pursue a quality of love that is not in us except through you and in you. You want to give it to us. So here we are today. I'm asking, wash us again. As you wash the feet of your friends, wash us of our unbelief. Wash us of our defeatism and way in which we minimize the work of your cross. Wash us. Cleanse us. We've got dirt we can't even see, but you love to surprise us and wash us again. So here I am, Lord. Wash me again. In Jesus' name, amen.